Welcome to Dojo Discussions. I'm your host, J.M. Smith, and the purpose of this podcast series is to provide answers to commonly asked questions that listeners send in. We do this via Facebook live stream, and then the audio is pulled and compiled and added to our podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. If you have questions on anything related to God, the Bible, faith, culture, um, ethical issues, politics, anything like that, anything you've ever just wondered about, go to www.discipledojo.org and you can submit questions through the contact page there. Without further ado, let's get into this session. All right, we're live. It's Tuesday at noon, so glad you guys could join us again for another edition of Dojo Discussions. And we had some good questions this week that I want to get into that sort of touch on a, a range of topics. So I'm going to try to look at the different questions, uh, dip into scripture a little bit, see what they have to say, and then offer some of my own thoughts as well. But this was the question, let's see which order to take these in. One of the questions, the first one it said, why are we so afraid to ask the hard things out loud? I believe we've been conditioned to not live an honest faith. We shove those doubts into the farthest reaches of our soul, thinking that merely asking them won't lead to revelation, but shame and a fractured worldview. And then he says, the second question is like it. Why are we afraid of questions of atheists and agnostics? If our faith or belief is true, it stands up to the harshest criticism. Why are we afraid to say, I don't know? Why are we afraid? So this is a question that somebody submitted uh, a while back for us to discuss. And honestly, my response to this is, I don't know. I don't know why some Christians are afraid uh, to question their faith. Um, I think it's not a Christian thing. I think that's a thing in general. If you get somebody who's a diehard Democrat or a diehard Republican to start questioning their foundation, politically speaking, they get a little nervous. They start responding with uh, deflections or criticism of something else, you know, or, or raising a straw man argument, uh, a red herring to kind of turn the conversation elsewhere. We don't like having our beliefs challenged because it makes us uncomfortable. And the deeper held the belief is, the more uncomfortable it is for us to reorient ourselves. So that's why it's easy to change our minds on things that don't really matter, but on things that are deep down important to who we are, things that are part of our identity, changing our beliefs becomes a lot harder. And some people can't separate, a lot of people can't separate the idea of what they believe with who they are at their core or what they do with who they are. And so when you, when you push someone to challenge their identity, their very identity, then you start to get immediately the defenses are raised. I mean, we see it obviously in politics. We see it in ethnicity. Uh, the whole concept of uh, cultural buzzwords like now, white fragility or ethnocentrism or any of uh, the, the, the identity markers that people cling to, whether good or bad, whether legit or not, when you push against those or when you undermine those, people get really defensive uh, a lot of times. Not everybody, of course, some people are very good about being open to changing their minds based on what they learn, but that is not the norm. And I don't think that's a Christian thing. So this person asking this is asking it from a Christian perspective. And we have to admit, I have to admit, yeah, Christians are just like everybody else in the sense that when our core beliefs are challenged, 
that makes us uncomfortable. And so for some people, that's the reason, you know, why are they afraid of the questions of atheists and agnostics? Well, in my own experience, I've had atheists and agnostics that are every bit as afraid of having their worldview challenged, of having, of, of honestly and genuinely looking at the evidence for the Christian faith and, or, or any other faith because of a, a concern of where that will lead. You know, that they think, oh, if I start looking into this, then I'm going to have to become a Christian and I don't like Christians, so I'm not going to look into this. And it's understandable, for sure it's understandable, but it's not intellectually honest. And uh, Christians can be the same way. You know, if my faith is challenged, if what I believed hearing growing up, my parents or my preacher or my priest or whoever told me, if I start questioning that, then that's going to lead me to become a fill in the blank, whatever. And that's an uncomfortable thing. And so some Christ, a lot of Christians shy away and they don't live a life of examined faith. That is, that is the antithesis of what Disciple Dojo was started for. Disciple Dojo is the place where, just like in a legit martial arts dojo, your knowledge is only as good as your ability to carry it out. So if you go into a martial arts school and you say, well, I'm a black belt, and you get on the mat and white belts just crush you over and over and over, then it's pretty clear you're not a black belt, or at least your black belt doesn't mean very much. Uh, in most cases, there are always exceptions to any generalization, but in most cases, that's what's going on. Well, it's the same thing with faith, with your, with your rationale, with your thought, with your beliefs. If your beliefs, if you're not willing to submit your faith to the deepest and the highest level of criticism, not the straw man, not, you know, a lot of people, oh, we don't even want to go down this rabbit hole. A lot of people like to debunk a caricatured version of something and then think they've debunked that thing. You see it from Christian apologists. Sometimes they get really excited and cocky and they bring up these atheistic straw men or, or, or some view that nobody actually holds to, but it's a caricature and they belittle it and they bash it. And then everybody claps and cheers yay, and, and they think they've done something when in reality, nobody actually holds that belief or at least the very best people, minds in the field don't hold that belief. Same thing with skeptics and atheists. I see it all the time, especially online, you know, especially in memes and uh, posts that, that uh, the, I call them the wiki skeptics, um, the, you know, the people who get all of their knowledge about Christianity from anti-Christian resources or from Wikipedia or places where you don't have to really do research. Like you kind of say you're doing research, but you're not really doing research. You're just reading stuff by people that agree with you. And, and people do this all the time. Atheists do it all the time. I mean, Christians do it as well. Everybody does it. It's a bias that we all have. We want to believe what we believe and we want to be right. Because if, it, if we're not right, it's uncomfortable having to change our beliefs. And so I think that plays into a lot inside and outside the church. Um, and there is, there's a fear, but with this question, I don't think it's a fear that's limited to Christians. I think it's a human thing across the spectrum, all beliefs. Um, every belief or lack of belief, I'm including atheists as well, every belief system, you will find someone who uses that system to oppress or to hurt or to silence others, every single one of them across the board. You will always find, some may do it a little more passive aggressively, some may do it a little more uh, cancel culture-ish than outright violence, but you will always find any belief, someone taking that belief and twisting it in an effort 
to manipulate, to control, or to coerce other people to do what they think needs to be done. And so when you challenge that, be ready for pushback because it's going to come. That's just who we are as people. So that was the first question. And then there's a second question that kind of follows up on it. It was from another listener. It said, I constantly wonder why people of the Christian faith don't seek out cultural knowledge of their religious adversaries in efforts to communicate and understand with love and not hate. And he gave the example of um, Muslims, of hating Muslims instead of understanding that Abraham had two sons that went in two directions, Isaac to Christianity and Ishmael to Islam. Uh, just to clarify, the, the Isaac being the descend, uh, giving birth to what became the Judeo-Christian heritage and Ishmael giving rise to what became Islam. That's not actually a biblical belief. The Bible never teaches that. Um, link, the, the, the mixing of peoples was way too um, uh, comprehensive to, to make it that neat and tidy. That's a belief that came up with the rise of Islam. Uh, 600 years after the time of Jesus. So, so just be aware of that, you know, saying, well, Muslims, they go back to Ishmael and Jews and Christians go back to Isaac. Not, no, that's, that's more of an urban legend. Um, there may be elements that some have tried to trace back in those directions, but that's, the Bible doesn't ever teach that. And I don't think history could bear that out either. Uh, the peoples of that part of the world mixed and mingled and intermarried, and it, it wasn't that neat and tidy. But that's just an aside getting back to the question itself, why don't Christians go seek out other faiths and, and develop relationships with them? I think it, it it's tangentially related to the first question because there's some people that are afraid if I go and talk to somebody of another belief system in a friendly way, if I let my guard down, then I may be persuaded, I may be evangelized, I may be sucked into whatever I've been told my whole life they believe. And for some people, again, that's a very scary thing. Uh, once more, completely antithetical to everything Disciple Dojo stands for. We encourage, I wholeheartedly encourage people to seek out people of other faiths and ask them, hey, what do you believe about this? Where do we agree? Where do we disagree? I think that's the only thing we can do in a culture that's pluralistic, where everybody has different beliefs. It's ridiculous to get your views of what another person believes from anybody other than that person. So if I want to know what Muslims believe about something, you know who I'm going to not ask? A Christian. I'm not going to ask a Jew. I'm not going to ask a Hindu. If I want to know what Muslims believe, guess who I'm going to ask? Yeah, a Muslim. And if a Muslim wants to know what Christians believe, who should they ask? Should they ask an atheist? Should they ask a Jew? Should they ask a Hindu? No, they should ask a Christian. Well, how can you do that if you have an adversarial relationship? There's the problem. So for Christians, I'm just speaking to Christians here, we have to cultivate relationships with people of other faiths and other ideologies and other worldviews. We have to. We have to build relationships, not for ulterior motives, you know, not just to, well, let me, let me pretend to be their friend so that I can hopefully tell them about Jesus and get them to become a Christian. No, no, that's not the goal. Is that great? Would that be awesome if it happened? Absolutely. Christians, we believe that the gospel is to be shared with people. We believe Jesus is the answer to the problems of the world. So it's ridiculous to expect Christians not to want people to come to faith in Jesus. 
that's something people just need to realize. That's that's what evangelistic faiths all believe. And that's okay. That's the goal of Islam as well, for people to submit. That's what the word Muslim means, one who is submitted. Their goal is to try to convince and to get the world to turn to God as they see him through the prophet Muhammad and the teachings of the Quran and the Hadith. Well, we have the same goal. I mean, we have the same it's not the same goal. We have, we're on the same mindset in terms of we believe there's a God. We believe he wants the world to know him. We just differ in who he is and what that knowing him looks like. And so when you come at things from that perspective, you can start to, you can start to celebrate the things you have in common while not uh, glossing over your differences. When, when Disciple Dojo, when we started the Refugee Jitsu program, which I'm hoping to get started again soon, I'm still trying to figure out how to do it with COVID guidelines in North Carolina, um, but but it's it's looking promising, like we're going to be able to start back a version of it soon, uh, hopefully. When, when we started that, one of the things that I did was I actually went to the Islamic Center of Charlotte. I sent him an email first. I said, hey, I'm a local Bible teacher. Uh, I, I do jujitsu and, and teach and reach out to kids from all different backgrounds and that are refugees or immigrants uh, or even lower income kids from here in Charlotte. But I don't have any good Muslim friends at this moment. And we need that. Like our country needs Christians and Muslims to be able to be show the world that we can be friends, like genuinely friends and like each other and get along and hang out and meet each other's families and have each other over for dinner. So I sent a message to the Islamic Center and just said, hey, I just want to make a friend with somebody or some of the people over there. Is that something anybody would be interested in? And I got a response back. And the, the people at the Islamic Center, they were so thankful and welcoming. And Fadi messaged me and he said, yeah, come over. I'd love to have tea with you. I'd love to have coffee. So we went over. I, it was a Friday evening. I sat. We had tea. I don't drink coffee, so but I drank tea. And then they had time for prayers. So he was like, do you want to come to prayers with us? And I was like, well, I'll be, I'll walk in there and see. So they went, I went into the, where they have their time of prayer. I sat in the back respectfully while they went through their evening prayers. And then we went back into his office and continued talking more. And it formed a really cool relationship because it was like, I'm not here to try to give you a tract and tell you about Jesus. Uh, I am a Christian. It is what I believe. And, and I would love to tell you if you ever have questions about it. But right now, I just want to make friends. And I just want us to share, a, 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 whether it's a cup of tea or a meal. And so as Refugee Jitsu kept going, you know, half, probably about half or a quarter of my students, maybe a third of my students are Muslim. And the goal in it was never and is still never to get these Muslim kids away from their parents so I can teach them jujitsu, make them look up to me, and then get to the real business of sharing the gospel. No, that's not it at all. It's a no-strings-attached approach. My goal is these Muslim families can send their kids and know that their kids are going to be treated just like any other kid. They're going to be uh, given a place to, to be a kid, First of all, they're going to be given a place that's safe. They're going to be given a place where they learn um, empowerment, where they learn self-defense, where they learn camaraderie, where they learn teamwork, where they learn all these things that we learn in jujitsu naturally. And they're not going to have to worry about whether their kid is safe or whether their kid is getting indoctrinated behind their back. Because I don't think that honors anybody. I don't think that honors God. And I don't think it honors the relationship that I'm trying to cultivate 
between the jiu-jitsu community here in Charlotte and the refugee and immigrant communities here in Charlotte. And so if it becomes this case of, well, let me just pretend to be friends with you so I can, you know, hit you with the gospel later, that's ridiculous. That's not lasting friendship. And that doesn't, that may lead to somebody saying a prayer and becoming a Christian or something like that, maybe, but it doesn't develop long-term friendship relationships upon which to build and actually share life together. But at the same time, the parents of our students, they know I'm a Christian. I'm very open about this is why I'm do I am doing this ministry because I believe that Jesus calls me to because I believe he loves you. And I believe he wants me to show his love to you in some tangible way. And for me, it's through helping your kids fit in and get empowered and not have to worry about bullying and all of these things that I would want if I had kids and had to flee to another country. And, and it's just that simple. Just doing that bridges the gap. And then lo and behold, you get invited to have dinner in somebody's home. And so I'm sitting around having dinner in uh, the home of Afghan refugees. And we're talking about everything, politics, religion, gender issues, um, you know, life growing up in Afghanistan, how it's different there from here, concerns about their kids, just everything, because we're genuinely friends. And that's the goal of it. So if I see that as an opportunity to create a friendship, then it's an, it's an incredible thing. If I see it as a, a task where I've got to share the gospel and at the end, this person has to say the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus in their heart, da, 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 then I'm setting myself up for a lot of frustration and I'm also not genuinely being a friend. So I want to encourage Christians through Disciple Dojo, this live stream, but also in general through what we do, be open to doing that with different faiths. With different, it doesn't have to be Muslims. And you're, you may live in an area that's got a large Jewish population. Hey, guess what? They probably don't have a lot of Christians reaching out to them to just be friends. They have a lot of Christians probably reaching out to say, hey, we want to be your friend so that we can convert you and, you know, get a, a, a notch on our belt. But it's very rare that there's just a no strings attached approach to friendship. And I think that's a very biblical thing. I think that scripture encourages that building those relationships with people that they then come to respect you. And guess what? You come to respect them. You learn a lot of things about people and what they believe. And you learn a lot of things about what people don't believe. You know, when I went the first time I went to the Middle East, I had been told all my life, you know, Israelis, Palestinians, what they're like. You know, I've, I'd seen tour brochures and friends that had gone on these tours of Israel and, and I heard all this stuff. And so I had all of these views in my head, but I've read enough to know this is may not be exactly what it's going to be like over there. So I went, spent 10 days, um, five days on one side, six or seven days on one side, and then uh, the rest of the time on the other side. So both the Palestinian and Israeli side. And guess what I found out? It's nothing like what we see on the news. Like day to day walking around in the West Bank in Palestine is nothing like what I thought it would be all growing up. And same thing in Israel, nothing like what I thought it would be. And wherever you land on the politics of that situation, and I'm very outspoken in the sense of what I believe in terms of justice and in speaking up for those who can't speak and being a voice, regardless, just know that what we're being told through mainstream media or not mainstream media, you know, blog clickbaity type media as well, what we're being told is not the reality. 
it's often very far from the reality. We get hints and glimpses and pieces, but at the end of the day, just going across a cultural boundary and actually being with people will change your entire perspective. And whether it's anything, whether it's faith, whether it's um, politics, whether right now Black Lives Matter, the whole controversy about race and what's going on in America. I see friends of mine, typically white conservative friends that will post these things about, you know, what black people believe or, or, or um, that systemic racial injustice is a myth. White privilege is a myth. And they'll you know put something usually by some white commentator or a particular favorite black commentator. And as if that settles the debate. And what I say to people whenever I, or at least I try to say as much as possible, I say, go, just go have dinner at the home of one of your black friends, like a legit, not a pundit, not somebody who's writing for Daily Wire or Turning Point USA or CNN or Vice or any of these politically loaded outlets. Just go into the home of someone who you are legitimately friends with, who you respect their ability to think and reason, and you know that they're not a reactionary. Find a black family or a friend and just have dinner and ask them. Just ask them, what are your thoughts on these things? Just tell me your perspective. No agenda. That's it. And by doing that, it's amazing what happens when you start to listen to somebody else. Because your defensiveness comes down because this is your friend. This is somebody you trust. This isn't a media shill. This isn't um, somebody who's trying to get you to believe something in order to do. It's just friends talking. And honestly ask them, what do you think? What has been your experience? Do you think white fragility is a myth? Do you think um, white privilege is a myth? Do you think that Black Lives Matter is a, a, can be supported um, if I don't agree with their politics or the organization itself or any of these questions that get teased out? What's been your experience growing up in this country? How have you experienced interactions with the police? Just talking, just listening and talking. And doing that is 100 million billion times more effective for the average person than clicking on that Facebook link or turning on the news and being told what people believe and therefore what you should believe. So all of this, it's not like, I mean, we're kind of meandering here a little bit and answering these questions, but it's more of, again, the purpose of these broadcasts, these sessions, is to get you to think about the issues and how to think about the issues rather than telling you what to think about the issues. So when it comes to questioning, when it comes to asking or being willing to um, confront people who have different beliefs than you, I'm 100% for it. I think it's, it's not just something that's a good thing. I think it's something that we're commanded to do. But there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. Look at, we're going to look at this passage in 1 Peter because this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And it's one of the things that defines the ministry of Disciple Dojo. It defines how I view my social media ministry. If you're just following me and you wonder, like, why do you post so much? Like, I view Facebook as my uh, Areopagus, so to speak, my Mars Hill, my, my place to go and engage the culture and to put things out and to get pushback. If I post something, I want you, if you disagree, I want you to tell me why. I want you to do it nicely and I'll try to do it respectfully as well. But that's the whole point. Um, is to get that pushback, to do what these questioners are saying Christians don't do, which is to submit what you believe to the highest form of scrutiny and criticism. I'm, I'm all for that. I think that's a great thing. So, But this is what Peter 
Peter, the apostle Peter, he's writing in his letter and he's, he's writing to Christians throughout the Roman Empire who are a beleaguered minority. They have not started really being persecuted yet, but it's going to be coming uh, shortly within after his life. And he's, they are thoroughly surrounded by a culture that is suspicious of them or is starting to become suspicious of them and where they don't have cultural clout. They don't have, like we in America have a Judeo-Christian history that, of course, I mean, it's, it's eroding quickly, but there's still a legitimacy to Christian faith that other faiths may not have in our country right now. You go to India, that's not the case. Um, you know, you go to certain places throughout the world, that's not the case. But at least in America, that's the case. But in the Roman Empire, it wasn't the case. Christians had no cultural clout. They had no credit with the authorities or with their neighbors or anything. And so Peter's writing, how should they act? How should they live in that society? And this is what he says. He says, this is First uh, Peter, this is chapter three. He says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers and sisters, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing." because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So he's telling them, first of all, this is, this is how you should respond in the face of hostility. This is how you should respond in the face of uh, a culture that looks at you with suspicion or with outright hostility. And just the word, I mean, you could do a whole sermon series on his directions to them uh, one by one, live in harmony with one another seek to not stir up dissent. There's a difference between stirring up discussion and stirring up argument. And you, we don't want to be people who, who get into the culture of outrage porn. You know, outrage porn is like what every major news outlet focuses on, like get people outraged. And then they want to click on something else that makes them even more outraged and it fires them up. And then it gets them to click on something else or turn the channel to to see something that makes them even more. And pretty soon you have a culture of outrage and they rely on these streams, these sewers of media pumping this filth into their lives, into their minds on a daily basis to tell them, Hey, this is what you should be ticked off about today. This is what those evil Democrats or those evil Republicans are doing that you should be angry about today. And this should be the most important thing today until the next thing we tell you to be angry about. And then that needs to be the most important thing. That's the cycle we live in, in the world of social media. So just Peter's advice of live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers and sisters, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Think how different the world would be if just Christians, I'm not even talking about the wider culture, if just Christians followed these words, think how different our culture would be. Think how little of an audience the right-wing outrage pundits would have. Think how cable news would change dramatically if Christians just did what the words of the New Testament tell them to do in regards to being in a surrounding culture. It would be amazing. It would be, it would be transformational almost overnight. But he's not done. He goes on, he quotes Psalm 34. Peter says, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. Imagine that. Imagine if Christians were not known for spreading lies or conspiracy theories. Imagine if Christians were not known for uh, taking shots at people, regardless of whether it's true or not, and spreading it online. 
how different would our culture be? He says he must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is, this is Peter quoting from Psalm 34. And he's saying, this is how God wants us to be. And he is against evil. God, God doesn't just let everything slide. There is a judgment. And Peter will have a lot to say about that, especially in his next letter. But the reality of God's judgment and of God not turning his face towards evildoers, that doesn't negate the call for Christians to live as aliens and exiles in this world, as immigrants, as foreigners, as people who are, who are ambassadors for Peter's Lord, our Lord, Jesus. That's the calling of Christians in this culture. So he asks a rhetorical question, verse 13, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? And what he's asking is if you're the kind of person who's known as someone who does good and who's eager to do good, like genuinely good, who really, who's going to want to harm you? You will build cultural credit just by being someone who has a reputation for doing good. And that's across borders, that's across beliefs, that's across ethnicities, that's across nationalities. In general, people, if, if you are in a community and you're in the minority, but you are known as someone who genuinely seeks the good of that community, most people are not going to be against you. They may not believe what you believe. They may just tolerate you. They may poke fun at you or ridicule you, but you're still going to have at least some ethical credibility because of who you are. I think of an example, think of the Amish. Like think of Amish communities. Like everybody, you know, people poke fun at the Amish and they're weird and they hold to certain beliefs that are strange. And they've kind of chosen to freeze time in the 1600s for some reason as if that's a holy period in history. Uh, and they have odd beliefs and odd behaviors and funny looking beards. But everybody pretty much likes the Amish. I mean, like likes them. If, if, if you found out an Amish family was moving in next door, you wouldn't be like, oh, there goes the neighborhood. Like, oh, I better start locking my doors. No, they have a reputation for doing good, even if they do it in a weird way. And, and that's kind of like what Peter's talking about here is who's, who's going to be against you if you are known as someone who practices good? Now, this doesn't have anything to do with earning your salvation. It doesn't have anything to do with being good in the ultimate sense of morally pure, uh, because Scripture is very clear. Nobody measures up to that standard. But there is a such thing as a general goodness in the world that's a residue or a fingerprint of God. And that's what we're called to be. And so Peter's saying, who's going to be, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But then verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be afraid. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter eight right there. Um, he, he's saying, look, even if somebody does try to harm you or somebody is antagonistic towards you, Know who you're rooted in, know where your faith lies, know who your authority is, and continue to do good. Continue to have that reputation to be known as someone who seeks the good of those around them. And that, that in and of itself will mitigate a lot of the offense that people have towards you. Not all of it. There will always be people who are just evil. There will always be people who are antithetical to good. That's a real thing. Evil is a real thing in the world. We've talked about that in previous discussions. 
But our calling is not to respond to evil with more evil, not to try to outdo Satan at his own game. And so Peter goes on and in the crux of the verse, he says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So no matter where you are, always be ready. Peter doesn't say be ready sometimes, be ready when it's convenient, be ready when you feel like it. He says always be prepared to give an answer. To what? To win an argument? No. He says to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Is our faith, is our visible Christian faith characterized by hope that we have? Or is it characterized by things that we're mad about? Is it characterized by what we're against? Or is it characterized by the hope that we put our, our faith in that we want to share with the world? Because there's a lot, I have a lot of Christians on my social media feed and I see what you post and you see what I post, obviously. And a lot of you, what you're posting isn't hopeful. It isn't, there, there's very little big picture of like, no, God's got this. He's not surprised when evil happens in the world. He's not outraged at every little thing that pops up. Do we reflect that in our social media footprint, in our social media witness? Do we reflect the hope that God has that we should cling to? And does that, that, that makes people say, hey, this world's going to hell in a handbasket, and yet you are living a life with hope, and you are living a life of joy. Why? What's that about? Why do you believe this Jesus stuff? Why do you believe this gospel? That's the goal of living a life of faith. So that when they ask you, you have an answer. And he says, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So Peter's telling Christians in the Roman Empire, look, if somebody is going to come against you, if they're going to attack you for something, make sure that it's not for anything that's legitimate, that, that they have to make up slander, that they have to lie about you in order to attack you. Let your conduct be impeccable. Let your, let your, um, your hope, let your life be characterized by, by goodness and a desire to give people life and to give people hope and to shine in darkness because it's a dark world out there. I, I mean, you can scroll your feed right now and I guarantee you, within one minute of scrolling, you're going to come across 20 articles that tell you how terrible things are in the world right now. I mean, it's just, it's going to happen. So are we engaging with that in a productive way? Or are we contributing to that and feeding on the outrage and feeding on the um, nihilism and the hatred generating I think Peter would uh, encourage us here uh, to put our priorities in the right place. So all of this is, in general, characterizing how we should be as Christians. Does it mean we never get mad? No. The same Peter is going to have some things to say that are pretty pointed. Um, does it mean we should never tell people about God's judgment? No. God's judgment's a real thing, and, and he will call us to speak to that. But does it mean that we should be characterized as people who genuinely do good? 
Yeah, that's what should characterize us. When people look at us, they should, even if they don't agree, they should go, you know what? I don't agree with what you believe at all, but I know that you want good for this world. I know that you desire good for me. I know that you care about me. Even if you disagree with me, I know you care about me. That's the reputation that Peter's telling and that the New Testament tells Christians, cultivate that relation. You know, the people, even the people that you argue with the most, even the people that you are diametrically opposed to on issues of religion, of politics, of ethics, of sexuality, of any of these things, of mask wearing or not mask wearing in this COVID time, the things that people divide over so fiercely, the people on the opposite side, of you, whatever the issue, they should know that at the end of the day, if they called you with an emergency, that you would be there. They should know that if there was nobody else to turn to and they're in a bind, that they could turn to you. Knowing you disagree, not even pretending that you agree on everything, but they know that you genuinely care about them and that you would be there for them in their, in, in their need. Man, think if that was our relation, if, excuse me, think if that was our reputation as Christians. How different would our culture be? How different would the world be? That's the reputation Christians used to have in the early church under the Roman Empire. Christians were known for doing good. They were known for touching the lepers. They were known for taking in the children that had been aborted in the ancient method, which is exposure, just left to die. They were known for staying in places where there were plague outbreaks, not fleeing to safety, but staying and ministering and healing and treating the people in the midst of the plague. That's what Christians were once known for. Can we ever get back to that? I don't know, but that should be our goal. That should be what we strive for. And I believe that's what Peter would tell us. Hey, try to do this. This is how you should live. This is what it means to be salt and to be light. We got uh, about 15 minutes, so we're going to finish with one more question that someone asked. And this is, again, tangentially related. Tangentially? I think that's how you say that. This is related to the question that came before. The two questions, uh, uh, someone sent this in on Instagram. He said, hey, my friend, in response to your request for Q&A podcast stuff, here's a culture question that's been on my mind. As we Christians become more and more educated on the harm that has been committed by the church in years past, as well as now in America, how do we strike the right balance between devoting energy to making things right within the church or trying to disciple fellow believers who are getting it wrong versus just seeking out unbelievers? I sometimes wonder which is more productive. Or in a cynical way, I feel like the church in America is turning people further away from Christ than they otherwise would have been. I could answer this for myself, but curious what your perspective is and if you're burdened by this. So his question is basically, should we focus on reaching, as Christians, should we focus on reaching people with the gospel who aren't followers of Jesus, who, who are outside the church? Or should we just say, you know what, we're going to focus on what's going on in our communities and that's going to be our focus. The answer to that I think is yes. I think both of those are absolutely crucial. And I think the church did has done both of those and should continue to do both of those. That there is a there's a difference between how we view people that are not a part of the Christian faith and and our engagement with them 
versus people who claim to be Christians and claim to be followers of Jesus, but live in ways that deny him or that bring his name into disrepute. Those are two very different attitudes. And we see this throughout the New Testament. Paul, in his writing to the Corinthians, when he would write about the people outside the church, he'd say, who am I to judge them? God will judge them. I'm worried about you Corinthians who are claiming to be brothers and sisters. And then he would have some pretty scathing uh, uh, remarks to them as an apostle. And so there's a sense that you can do both of these things, that you should be doing both of these things. I don't think church abuse turns anyone further away from Jesus because I don't think it's, I think that everything at the end of the day, you're going to stand or fall based on how you respond to Jesus, not based on what somebody who claims to be a Christian did years ago, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think there's a sense that we, we can't worry about what other churches are doing and how that may be driving people away in an ultimate sense. We just have to say, look, if you're expecting perfection, if you're expecting a pristine environment where everyone is perfect and, and everyone has uh, completely given over all their baggage corporately and is, is living the kingdom in the now, you're not going to find it because people, the church is a body that's constantly receiving new members, that's constantly shepherding people along the way. And the church is going to constantly be a fallible human organization in some degree. That's just how it is. So we can never lose uh, hope because of we hear about church abuse. But at the same time, yeah, church abuse, church misbehavior, uh, that should enrage us to a degree, a higher degree than anything done by people who don't claim to be Christians. Like there's a genuine holy discontent. There's a genuine uh, righteous indignation. That we should feel. So when 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 pastors, when people who are called to be shepherds, when they willingly or greedily mislead people about what Scripture says, think of prosperity preachers. Think of the Creflo Dollars and the Kenneth Copelands out there and the Paula Whites that are that are greedily leading people to believe that the Bible wants everybody rich and healthy and living in a big house and and glorying in material possessions. Yes, that should grieve us. That should anger us because it's a perversion of the gospel uh, and it brings shame upon the name of Jesus. Uh, when a church, when a shepherd, when a pastor, uh, a spiritual leader abuses someone, uh, whether it's a, a sexual relationship with a member of their congregation or whether it's a child and they're abusing that role of trust and guardianship, that should absolutely outrageous. And there should be no tolerance whatsoever for that within the church. There's, there's far too many cases of churches kind of turning a blind eye or shuffling problematic leaders around or hushing things up. And um, that's inexcusable, absolutely inexcusable. And so we should be ruthless in rooting out the sins that are in our midst and exposing them to the light. But at the same time, that, that doesn't mean that you can't also proclaim Jesus to a watching world. In fact, doing that work of church discipline and discipling and rooting out sin and exposing it and calling it out and shaming it, there's a good place for shame. It's not always a bad thing. Uh, that doing that in and of itself sends a message to people outside of the church. 
doing that in and of itself shows the world what type of community we are called to be and that we are willing to be even when it's hard, even when it's potentially embarrassing, even when it's uncomfortable. There's a parable that Jesus told. We'll, we'll end with this one. Um, Jesus told a parable. So for those of you that don't know what parables are, they're little stories that usually have one meaning, like a specific meaning, but the meaning is kind of hidden. Jesus, wasn't, Jesus didn't give PowerPoint presentations. He didn't give bullet points. He didn't give an outline. He didn't give, here are the rules to live by. Jesus spoke in parables. He spoke in riddles. He spoke cryptically. He used prophetic imagery. He confused people intentionally sometimes uh, because he wanted the message to be for those who have ears to hear, meaning those whose hearts make them want to understand what he has to say, enough to search for it, enough to to ponder it, enough to consider what he says over and over. And so you see this throughout his ministry. This is how he operates. And his disciples, over the course of their years with him, they started to become better at, at picking these things up. But a lot of the time, his disciples, other disciples, religious leaders, his enemies, they just missed what he was saying. And every now and then, he didn't do it often, but every now and then he would explain a parable. And he would say, well, here's what I meant. Not often, but enough to give us the ability to read his other parables and to understand them and to ferret out the meaning as well. And he says this, this is in Matthew 13. Jesus told them another parable, Matthew 13, verse 24, if you have your Bible. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up some of the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So he just told this story and that was it. And they told another parable after that about the mustard seed and yeast and the growth of the kingdom. Down in verse 36, then he left the crowd, went to his house. The disciples came to him and said, explain the parable of the weeds in the field. Like we got the other ones, Jesus, but this one, explain this. He answered, verse 37, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus' title for himself. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will, be th they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. He alluded to Daniel um, 12 in that last about shining like the stars. Um, or shining like the sun. That's an allusion to Daniel 12, which is where the book of Daniel is where Jesus' title, Son of Man, comes from. And the Son of Man, was the, in Daniel's vision, was this 
godlike but also human figure and Daniel never really could figure out exactly how that would play out but he was this figure who was both human and divine son of man just means human and who would be given all authority to judge at the end of the age and he would judge he would cleanse the world of evil and the righteous would be resurrected to eternal life in, a, in an embodied existence of a renewed creation so this is Jesus's end times view, his eschatology. And he's saying, yeah, that's what's going to happen. But here's a parable for you to look at the world in between when all this is happening. There's a field and he's the son of man, Jesus, sows into that field, good seed, wheat, kernels of wheat, and they start to grow. But an enemy comes in and he explains the enemy is the devil. He throws in some weeds. You know, weeds will, will intertwine and their roots will get all enmeshed and they'll kind of suck the nutrients from the good plants and they'll grow up faster than them to steal the sunlight. And they'll, they're just a mess. I mean, if you've ever weeded a garden, that's why you're doing it because you want the good plants to grow. And so what do you do? You pull the weeds out and you throw them away to be burned or you throw them in the trash or whatever. Well, in doing that, sometimes you accidentally pull out some of the things you don't want to pull out. And so Jesus, when the workers come to him, says, hey, we, we, we sowed good seed, but all of a sudden there's all these weeds. What should we do? And Jesus says, relax. When it's time to harvest, I'll send the harvesters and they will make the distinction. We'll pull it all up together and the good and the bad will be sorted. And you can trust me on this. And that to me has always been a comforting parable because it perfectly explains brokenness in churches and brokenness among Christians in this age. We look around, we go, well, if Jesus is real, if churches, if, if the gospel is true, why are churches such a mess? And the answer is because there's wheat and weeds in there together. Well, who's the responsible for that? An enemy. Satan comes in. Every time there's good, he's going to come in and mess it up. Anything good, he's going to come and twist and, and muddle in and get his hands involved in and, and, and turn it to be considered bad in hopes that people will just say, ah, let, in getting rid of it, let's just pull it all up. And in doing that, they pull up some of the good. That's the goal is to sow anarchy, to sow confusion, to sow um, chaos. And so what Jesus is saying in this parable is, hey, relax. It's all going to get sorted. Don't be in a panic of saying, we got to pull out, we got to distinguish, we got to have a perfectly pure church. And if anything happens, oh, oh, it's all over. No, Jesus is like, no, I've got this. It's not a surprise to me. Have faith in the one who's going to harvest at the end. Have faith that God knows who are his and who are just pretending. So people that are turned off by churches, you know, I, I said to them, are you turned off by Jesus? Or are you turned off by people who claim to follow Jesus and how they act? Because those are two very different things. And you will never be judged based on your response to hypocritical Christians. God's not going to, at Judgment Day, ask you, hey, uh, why did you reject me? Is it because of those Christians you saw that were acting bad? Okay, cool. That's understandable. No, it's going to be, what did you do with me? Yes, the world contained good and bad. Yes, there were weeds among the wheat. But... What did you do when confronted with me? What's your response to me? That's what God's going to ask us. So the, we, we want to be careful, especially as Christians. Yes, we're sensitive to calling out sin. Yes, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Yes, we want to have integrity in how we minister. And yes, we want to call out sin where we see it and not give it any quarter or any tolerance in our ministries. All of that, yes. And scripture does teach all of that 
in elsewhere. But underneath all that, we have to keep in mind that there's going to be weeds among the wheat. And we have to trust that when it's harvest time, that the Son of Man knows the difference between the weeds and the wheat. And one's going to be gotten rid of, and the other will remain forever. So the question that we ask is, so which are you, weeds or wheat? What are we doing right now in this moment that is contributing to us being wheat or us being weeds? So this is, Jesus' parables are really cool. I mean, they, they, they give you visual images. They don't always make sense to us because we're not an agrarian society. We're not first century uh, Palestine where, uh, you know, Hebrew culture uh, or Jewish culture at the time was based on the, a tightness to the land, to the seasons, to, to growth and things like, you know, we get away from that. But if we have enough insight to, to know that that was what's going on back then and kind of reconstruct that world, then when we read Jesus's parables, we really start to see things jump out from them that we may have missed. And this idea of the harvest is a, is a prime example of how he viewed things like judgment and the end of the world and the goal of everything. So there's cool stuff. Read, read through Jesus' parables on your own sometimes and, and see what you come away with. But those are, anyway, those, today I wanted to just talk about these three questions and because they all had to do with how we as believers relate to a non-believing world, how we live in and among people who don't share our faith, who don't share our beliefs, and the mindset that we should have in dealing with people like that. Should we have a defensive mindset? Should we have a, a put up the walls and hunker down and circle the wagons and just, just stay in our holy huddle? Should that be our mindset? Or should we have a mindset of be light, be salt, go into the world, don't be overcome by the world, but transform the world. Be people who do good. Seek the good of your community. Don't try to stir up trouble where there's none needed. Have a reputation of being someone who is gentle, who has respect for people, who can disagree in love, who can actually still give of themselves to people who disagree. You know, that's the kind of, that's the kind of people that scripture calls us to be. So how you're going to do that in your own life, I don't know. It depends on your situation. It'll depend on where you are in the world. It'll depend on what your role is, what your calling is. It'll look different for different people. And that's okay. But this is the underlying principle, or these are the underlying principles that should guide how we approach questions like this. We're going to call it a day. Uh, yeah, we're going to call it a day now. If you have questions for future episodes, send those to me. Either post them below here on this video or send them to me uh, through, you can do Facebook Messenger. You can uh, DM me on Instagram. Um, on Instagram, I'm at James Michael and the number seven. So at James Michael seven, you can shoot me a DM there. Uh, message me here or go to discipledojo.org and click the contact button at the top of the page. And there will bring up a form that you can email a question, ministry thoughts, uh, concerns, anything like that. That's the best way to get in touch with me. So uh, keep submitting the questions, keep sending them in. I, I keep them in a note file and I use them for future episodes. So don't just sit back and not participate. I mean, everybody's got questions about something. And if I don't know the answer, I'm going to at least discuss how to think about it and how to approach it 
Uh, and if Christians disagree on it and it's honest disagreement, I'll tell you that as well. And we'll, we'll unpack it some. So that is it. You guys have a great week. We, we're going to do this again next Tuesday at noon. There may be one this weekend. Um, there's always a possibility. So stay tuned on my Facebook feed because there may be a, a, a kind of one-off dojo discussions that may pop up sometime on the weekend. But otherwise, next Tuesday at noon, we'll see you back here. And again, this will be added to the podcast. So if you miss this or, or you want to send this to somebody, but they aren't going to sit and watch a video, then discipledojo.org slash podcast. Click on any one of the podcast providers up there. Subscribe to us. That really helps. Um, and yeah, thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week.